Welcome to Leading the Next Generation with Tim Elmore. I am your co-host, Andrew McPeak, and our mission here at Growing Leaders is to empower the emerging generations with skills to lead in real life. And Tim, today, to kick us off, we couldn't help ourselves because we're kind of we're talking about <laughs> student engagement, uh, getting them more engaged in the classroom. We're going to give some really great suggestions, hopefully, by the end of this. Um, but as we were thinking about student engagement, I couldn't help but remember one of our favorite comedians here at Growing Leaders, and that is Brian Regan. Yeah. He's a stand-up comedian, folks. You probably have heard him. But you want to set this clip up because it's just funny. So we're going to play a clip for you of one of his jokes, telling a story from his own youth about a time when he was a little disengaged at school. And he tells it so hilariously, but I think it may reminisce of some interactions with disengaged students that you've heard of. So let's listen in. I think the worst day was the day the science project was due. Waking up that morning, that was fun, huh? Yeah. Your head would pop off your pillow. Oh, no. That's due today. I had nine months to work on it. I did nothing. I have a cardboard box. I don't know what to do for my project, so I brought in a paper cup filled with dirt, just hoping she'd know I'm an idiot and just walk right on past me. As long as I was holding something. (laughs) What do you have there, Brian? It's a cup of dirt. Just put an F on there and let me go. (laughs) Well, explain it. Well, it's a cup with dirt in it. I call it cup of dirt. You should move on now. You should go ahead and move on. Head on down the line there. I think I'm laughing because I'm thinking of both myself and other peers yep. of mine in K-12 education. We've oh, all no. been there. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's due today. <laughs> and we are so not owning what we're doing. It's and so that's true. really our subject today, yeah. um, ownership. I I think back, Andrew, my growing up years, it wasn't just school. It was in even after-school activities. When I didn't own something... I remained a child. I wasn't maturing. Yeah. I remember my dad talked me into having a paper route as uh, a kid. About classic. 12, 12 years old. Yep. Yeah. That was how you made money at 12. Uh-huh. And he talked me into it, and I said, well, I like to make money. So there I was walking or riding my bike from house to house throwing newspapers on the line. Well, that was okay, but I remember one particular Saturday, it was time to collect. You know, you collected the payment for the papers you had thrown on there for a month. Uh-huh. And I think it was cold and rainy and I didn't want to go. And I just, I was just watching TV and dad said, you're going to collect? I, I, I don't want to. I, I really don't want to, you know. <laughs> well, I didn't want to do it, but I, I wasn't connecting the dots. I'm not going to get my money if I don't. Yeah. So I didn't go out and dad didn't stop me. He just said, all right, it's your call. Well, you know, now I'm wanting to buy something and the money wasn't there. And I quickly realized I should have engaged, I should have owned yep. that job I had, yep. but I'm sure this could be told millions of times with kids all over the all world. All kinds of different things, yeah. What's funny is your dad knew, I think this is a lesson uh-huh. that he's going to learn from the consequences quite easily That's on right. his own. He doesn't yeah. need my help whatsoever. No words necessary. What's yeah. interesting, though, is I think <clears throat> a lot of times the reason for lack of student ownership is because we step in as the adult a little too often. And I know one of the ways we wanted to kick this off is actually talking about a story you came across that Mm -hmm. is a perfect example of how there's a connection between us doing too much 
and the ownership that the people were leading, actually. Yeah. Have. So I'm sure there's lots of different people listening, but I do know you have one thing in common. You care about the next generation. I have contended for years that we have not underfunctioned, we've sometimes overfunctioned mm-hmm. as parents, as teachers, as coaches, as employers, as nonprofit leaders, all in, in, in the name of we want our kids to succeed. So there's a story, as Andrew just said. Let me tell, tell you this story because it's such a picture of us. So building off of an earlier patent by John Duff, General Mills, who owned the brand Betty Crocker, we've mm-hmm. all heard of Betty Crocker cake mixes, uh, they created their very first Betty Crocker instant cake mix in 1947. So that's yeah. a lot of years ago. Yep. Since the Great Depression and World War II were over, people were spending money again. So they thought, this is the time to yeah. unleash this new instant cake mix. So folks at Betty Crocker assumed that because they made baking easier, sales would take off. Um, after all, the world was moving toward convenience and speed, okay? And that makes sense. It still is. Uh, well, folks didn't buy it. Hmm. I mean, it was on the shelves, this instant cake mix from Betty Crocker. They weren't buying it. In fact, so few people bought it that General Mills and the Betty Crocker folks said, we need to find out why. Wow. So they hired a psychologist by the name of Dr. Ernest Decker, or Dector, I'm sorry, who went out and started holding focus groups. Huh. In fact, I understand Dr. Dector is the father of the modern focus group. Okay. So this way back in the 40s, he's sitting down with mostly moms and housewives and, and ladies, because it was mostly then ladies that were doing the baking. Mm-hmm. But he was asking them, why aren't you buying the cake? And he heard feedback that was honest and clear. Huh. And when he went back to the General Mills people, he had a presentation. And here's what he reported when he returned to the, to the company. He said, gentlemen, I think you've made the process of making a cake too simple. Hmm. That's odd, isn't it? Yeah. Too simple. Uh, you've removed the customer from the process. Wow. Interesting. They don't feel that their baking experience is real, end huh. quote. Yeah. So they said, well, what do you think we should do? I mean, that we, you know, we, we know this is the future. And Dector uh, suggested they remove just one ingredient. So Andrew, <laughs> in the very beginning, this is history for you. Well, it's history for me too, yeah. I guess. It was just powder, just a box of powder. Add water and stir. That was the directions. Uh-huh. And he had them remove one ingredient. Do you know what that ingredient was? It's the eggs. Because I've, I've made yeah. those cakes yeah. in my growing up years yeah. now. So when they made the consumer add their own eggs, sales took off. Amazing. Yeah. In fact, between January 47 and August 48, sales tripled for this instant cake mix by making wow. one change. Wow. Now, I don't want to borrow too much from this story, but I think it's a picture of us, yes. the adult population today. We have so wanted our kids to succeed, the consumer, if you will. Yep. We've created our own instant cake mix in the classroom, yes. our own instant cake mix on the soccer team, yep. our own instant cake mix at home. Yeah. And by that, I mean we've so prescribed and structured and supervised the, the, the experience of a kid today, of a student today, that they're going... It's not mine. Yeah. This is yours, Mom. This is yours, Miss Johnson. Yeah. And, and again, I want to be very kind. I, I'm an educator, too. You're an edu- We do the same thing. We want this to go so well and not be messy. Yes. But you know what? Before instant cake mixes, we baked from... Scratch. Yeah, from scratch. And what's messier than that? That's, nothing <laughs> is messier than baking, especially when I'm the one doing it. Yeah. So, you know, fresh flour, 
fresh eggs, fresh milk, fresh sugar. I mean, mix it all together, and yeah, you got messes everywhere. But the cake is delicious mm -hmm. because it's been made from scratch. Yeah. I wonder, wonder, wonder what would happen if we, the adult leader, would say, we're going to let these students learn from scratch. Now, we're going to guide them. It's not like we just turn it into chaos, but guiding them, being a guide, not a god in the classroom. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do any of this instant cake mix stuff any, anymore. So the lesson for us today is um, too many of us have turned our classrooms into the, into the cake mix. Um, and, and, and so I got to wonder if this is true, if there's a kernel of truth, why do we do this? Yes. So let me attempt. I want yeah, you to weigh in. Give a few insights. Yeah. yeah. So here's my thought. Um, I think, I, I sometimes wonder, do we feel such a pressure to teach to the test? We've heard that term now for yep, yep. decades now. Yep. We want to get the exams right, the scores are high, so we get the funding and we get the school moving forward, not backwards in our GPA and so forth, or graduation rates, whatever we're measuring. Um, so I think we do. Uh, we believe we need to create that cake mix that makes the process quicker, simpler, and much less messy. Just add water and stir. Yeah. Um, do we feel the pressure to get through so much curriculum so quickly that we dare not make our students practice metacognition yeah, yeah. and figure out the answers on their own where they have to do their own thinking and they answer their own why question? Uh, we don't have time for them to curiously explore and genuinely experiment. Yeah. And do we feel tangible pressure, I wonder, from parents to help their children find the answers or to give them the answers sometimes and not to add their already high stress levels? In other words, we see them so stressed out, we go, well, good God, I don't want to add to the stress. So yeah. here's, here's, the, here's the three steps you should take. Yeah. Or here's the answer you should know. So here's what's interesting. I just talked about answers. Yeah. In 1954, Betty Crocker actually debuted the answer cake. That's what they called it, <laughs> the answer cake. I'm not kidding. It was a cake and frosting mix, prepackaged in a pan and marketed to small families. What a name, answer cake. Betty Crocker was saying, we will do it all for you, Mr. and Mrs. Customer. Just leave it to us. Wow. Does this sound familiar? Sadly, it does. Sadly, yeah. it does. I think, you know... It, this is worth saying, we have really good intentions, right? You yeah, just brought up sure. wanting to release students' stress, wanting to make sure we've got them as ready as possible for that test that sadly yeah. actually does matter a whole lot for where they're going to end up. Uh, and so we work to try and make sure that we take care of all these things. And and the sad reality is, in fact, lots of studies are showing this. It's not just a metaphor that we're yeah. applying here. We're actually applying a lot of research uh, to say that oftentimes doing too much has the opposite the adverse effect, effect. the adverse yeah, no effect doubt yeah and just acknowledging right your heart is in the right place we just got to really think about what is happening when we make the decisions that we're making andrew i'll admit i've led many answer classes yeah <laughs> and here's why i'm guilty of this very thing that i'm 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 projecting here I love teaching and explaining things. Yes. Have you noticed that in the yeah. last several years you've been with? I do too, you know, so we're all well, guilty Yeah, yeah here, we're all the same, but you know, uh, figuratively speaking. Figuratively speaking, yes. um, I feel better about myself when I explain it well. Yeah. I see light bulbs go on in the faces of the students out there or the faculty that I'm training. So in my love of explaining, I realize I'm operating out of my own need. Mm. I need to feel better about myself. I need the affirmation people clapping at the end saying, great presentation, Dr. Elmore. And I don't like that. But when I stand back and think about it a little bit, 
I'm wondering if I have been prescriptive in my style because I like to be the one with the answer. I like to throw the Superman cape on and fly out to Lois Lane. Don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah, Yeah. Jimmy Olsen. So, yeah, we're a little bit like the, I don't know, the fitness trainer at a gym. (laughs) He says, I want to help you learn health and fitness, so stand back and watch as I lift all the weights for you. We're basically doing most of the work. In fact, if you're a teacher or a parent and you're listening to this right now, I would ask you, in your leadership of the students, would you say you're doing more of the heavy lifting, to use that figure of speech, yeah. the trainer, or are they doing more of the heavy lifting? If, if it's balanced, you're in the right direction. If yeah. they're doing more of it, that's a good thing, yep. um, a very good thing. Um, Andrew, I laugh all the time when I think about one exchange I heard about from a teacher who said she was walking around her class as the students were working hard on an assignment, and one student stopped her and said, do you get paid? I mean, he was asking his teacher if she got paid. She says, yes, I do. And he goes, that's funny. We do all the work. And I think that's how students ought to feel, that we're doing the work. I'm leading you, but you're doing the work here. Yep. So, it seems a bit counterintuitive, but yeah. this is actually the way it's supposed to work. That's right. So yeah. I, I bet you I, people are listening now going, I agree with you. I agree with you. How do we do this? Well, I think the first decision we're going to have to make, Andrew, and let's talk about this for just a moment, you and I. I think we've got to shift our style from prescriptive leadership Mm. to descriptive leadership. Those are terms we like to use at Growing Leaders. So prescriptive leadership is just that. We're prescribing every step along the way to the student, every actionable item, every project, every this, that, or the other. It's just, it's very, very supervised, overstructured, Neat and in place. Yep. It's you almost know? like you could say a prescriptive is describing both the outcome and the steps to reach yes, that outcome. that's right. Yeah. It's really true. When we move to descriptive leadership, now we're perhaps, I'm just going to paint a picture here, we're perhaps sitting down with a student before uh, an assignment and we say, what's your goal? What's your goal yeah. in, in today or in this assignment or this year or this semester? And they go, I don't know. Well, what do you think it ought to be? Let them press them a little bit to do their own thinking. Okay, here's my goal. And let's say they say it's ABC, whatever. Then they want to look to you because we've conditioned them to do so to come up with the steps. And you say, well, now, what steps do you think you ought to take to get that goal? Well, I don't know. Well, think about it. This is going to take time. But when we nudge them, I like that verb, when Mm -hmm. we nudge them toward coming up with the answers themselves, we are truly preparing them for adulthood. We're preparing them for post-graduation, where they will either go to a career or a college or a military, and they'll be ready for it because they've actually done some thinking on their own. Absolutely. This reminds me of um, the college professor that we heard um, years ago who saw the importance of this, right? They wanted to, uh, she wanted to uh, get her students to understand this. And she kept having this challenge every year where she would uh, create the syllabus for her students, right? She'd show it to them. It's their first year of college. And she, um, uh, she would go through, take multiple class periods to go detailed through the syllabus. And she said, like clockwork, every single year, week one, week two, I would have students come in and ask me questions that were on the syllabus, which I had just got over in class. And she said, they're just not owning it. So what she decided to do was to flip the script and actually ask her students during the first couple periods of that, uh, that class to actually come up with the syllabus themselves. They created the syllabus. So she'd ask them all kinds of questions like, 
um, like, for instance, how many tests do you want to have? Uh-huh. Yeah. I love that question because yeah. it's got so much weight, right? So yeah. you say, how many, we have to have at least one test. How many tests do we want to have? So the smart kid who thinks he's smart goes, well, if we only have to have one, let's have one, right? Yeah. And then the much smarter kid in the back of the class goes, actually, if we only have one class, one test, then our entire grade is going to be based on this one test. Yeah. So they start negotiating yep. it and they land at four tests, right? Well, it's the exact same amount of tests that the teacher professor had on the uh, yeah. uh, syllabus before they, they went through this process. In other words, she had made a very logical, very student-oriented choice, but simply because they weren't a part yeah. of that process, they didn't see it. One thing I love uh, that she did was she, after that, ended up breaking her classroom into pods, mm-hmm. groups of four, yep. maybe five. Yep. And uh, pod number one was going to teach the class this section of the course, pod number two, this section, pod number three, that section. And she even asked the kids, what do you want to learn this year? And she wiped her brow when she told me this. She said, thank God they came up with exactly the biology stuff that I wanted to teach them. But she actually took a risk. Yeah. The point was she wasn't just teaching to the test. She was saying... I know you're going to own your learning if you tell me what you want to learn yeah. and that you actually start teaching each other and I'll guide you through what you're missing. Yes. But it's the transfer of ownership really took place. Absolutely. Like my dad saying, okay, if you don't want to collect the money for the papers, that's, that's your on call. you. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, yeah. And, and, even if you can't transfer what? I know that a lot of you are like, I got third graders here. Yeah, you know, I yeah. can't ask them, what do you want to learn yeah. in math this year? You can still come to them about how. Yes. Right? Yeah. How do you want to learn? We can do it this way or this yeah. way, right? Yeah. Simple decisions like that can still make a huge difference. So if you're listening and you're going, that makes sense, but is this really, really a problem today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, let me, in a real quick rat-a-tat-tat sort of way, list how nearly every part of a student's life, at least that adults are part of, is prescribed by us. Mm. So parents can be prescriptive in their leadership, scheduling each day, yep. you know, school, uh, you know, karate, uh, soccer practice. Yep. Uh, you know, and this, by the way, that. I'm driving you between all those That's things. That's right, yeah. yeah, on the minivan, getting a fast food stop. Uh, teachers can be uh, prescriptive in their lesson plans, teaching to the test. We've alluded to that already. Yep, yep. Coaches can be prescriptive in their instruction for practices and games. Yes. Um, Andrew, I remember Friday night football when I was in high school, at least where I grew up, the coaches turned the upperclassmen loose. They were the quarterback or the middle linebacker, the leader of the defense or offensive football team. And we made the decisions. Mm. Uh, Today, you watch a Friday night football game after the play is over, What's the student athlete do? What's the quarterback do? Look over sideline. Look at the sideline, yeah. What, what What's you, the tell, play, coach? Tell me what to do. Yep. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And the reason we're that way is because we put such high stakes on the game. The coach goes, "I'll get fired if I don't run this show." Yep. So again, we're we're stealing from the students. We're stealing. Um, yeah, I, I just, vital opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So you've heard me tell this story before, Andrew, but it's quite funny. I saw a one-frame comic of a Friday night game. The coach is in front of his football team. These teenagers are sitting there just listening to their coach. And the coach basically says this. All right, fellas, this is your game tonight. This is your season to win. This is your championship to take. Now, go out and do exactly what I told you to do. You know, that's exactly what happens. (laughs) You know? So anyway, let's keep going. Watch this, listeners. Uh, YouTube and Netflix can be prescriptive, suggesting what videos to watch next. Yeah. You just sit there vegging on the couch. It'll scroll to the next Five video. seconds. That's don't, all you got. You don't even have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Amazon can be prescriptive, suggesting what other products you might like. If yes. you like this, you'll yes. like this. Yes. Um, employers are prescriptive in their formula to reach the numbers they need. And then social media apps can be prescriptive in their format to keep you scrolling and watching, yep. scrolling and watching. Yep. It just doesn't stop. So think about it. Generation Z kids are growing up in this world where we have taken over and said, we will get you to the goal. Yeah, that sounds good, but we've done too much. We've yeah. overfunctioned. Yeah. Truth be told, the answer to quality education is not about answers. That is so huge. I feel like you need to say that again. Okay. I think the truth be told, the answer to a quality education is not about answers. Yes. It's all about ownership on the part of the students, whatever we have to do yes. to do this, to Couldn't accomplish Couldn't agree this. more. Yeah. So this means two things, listeners. Number one, change the student's role from being consumers to being creators. That's huge. Yep. And then number two, change our role from being commanders to being consultants in the classroom. Love it. Yeah. So it's a different paradigm. It's a yeah. different metaphor to hold in your minds as you as you move through the class. I love this. I love this. Well, uh, obviously, there's a there's a whole lot of ways we could do this. Yeah. So one of the things, as you always, you're so helpful in the way that you approach these things. You've written down a few suggestions of uh, if you don't know where to start with this shift from prescriptive to descriptive leadership. Here's a few ideas. Uh, maybe it's an eat the fish and spit out the bones moment, right? Yes. You don't have yeah. to do all of these. But if you're looking for a way to start, here's a couple of great ideas that Tim has written down uh, for us to be able to process through, and maybe we can begin there. So this is you getting rid of the instant cake mix and going back, and we're going we're to do the We're going to learn from scratch here. I love okay? it. I love it. So um, I've got a handful. Here they are. Number one, once a day, refuse to answer a student's question. I know that sounds heretical, but refuse to... Now, I know you want to answer the question because you need to show them, oh, I, I deserve to be the history teacher now. Yeah. You know? But refuse to answer the student's question. Turn that student loose to look up answers and debate them until the best solution surfaces. I love it. Yeah. So math, spelling, literature, history, whatever. Think about the reality, though, the 21st century. They've got their phone they're probably mm -hmm. not supposed to have. They've yeah, got yeah. their friends. <laughs> they've got their book. They have so many yeah. resources available to find and debate this answer. Yeah. Why wouldn't... In fact, the yeah. ability to look stuff up is the true skill of the yeah. 21st Resourcefulness. century. Resourcefulness. Let's, yeah. ex let's exercise that. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, number two. Instead of traditional grading of papers or tests, communicate how many mistakes were made and turn the students loose to find each one. I love it. Yeah. So this is very counterintuitive. Uh, you're saying, well, there were five answers that were wrong. You guys find which ones. Boy, that turned... That turns everything on its ear. Indeed it does. Yeah. yeah. You're all of a sudden you're Sherlock Holmes on this test. That's yeah. right. And I they're learning it. from scratch. Three, pose questions and create disequilibrium. Now you all know what that word is. Allow for some awkward silence in the classroom as students figure out their next steps in the process. They, I think these students intuitively know it, it'll be quiet for a few seconds, but my teacher will jump in and, 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 and you know, speak up yep. and say, well, since you don't know, here's the answer. I say, no, let it be awkward for a moment or two yep. or three or four, yep. you know, and say, I'm waiting. You know, you guys dig that. And after that happens a few times, they'll realize she is serious. He is serious. We're, we need to do the digging here. All right. I love that. Uh, number four, I love this one. Um, choose a day and let the students plan the entire class period. I love that. In fact, 
let them record themselves teaching their lesson and evaluate themselves afterwards. This is a double win now. Yes. So they're learning to communicate. They're learning to study and deliver. So, yeah, that's just one of my favorites. Here's another one. On your next exam, fill in the wrong answers on the blanks. The very ones students gave in class. I love so it. you're listening along the way, oh, that was wrong, that was wrong. Todd gave that one, oh, that was wrong. But you're mark, and then you fill in the blanks with the wrong answers that the very ones they gave in class. And then let students grade the test and find the proper answers. So that's mm. akin to one of the earlier ones, but it's making them do the digging. I love it. Okay, they're the archaeologist for knowledge. Uh, here's another one, number six. Um, give an assignment and allow students to collaborate on Google Docs. So we know some teachers that do this. Um, each one is asking questions and typing in notes that they're taking as the class period goes on, providing to help, uh, provi providing to um, help their classmates when one of them know the answer. Here's what one teacher told me at a seminar. She said, Tim, when I have them all working on Google Docs, the shy ones that would never have the courage to raise their hand and go, I don't even know what you're talking about right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, say, what's she talking about right now on uh -huh. the Google Doc? They're typing. And someone goes, oh, she's, remember last Tuesday when we talked about the, um, the ice plant or whatever, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they're actually, they're, this is metacognition. Yeah. They're helping each other understand and gaining understanding in, in the real process. real time. Yes. That's awesome. So I know that some of you think, well, this doesn't mean every student's doing equal work. No, but you know what? We're in the workplace we all chime in from our strengths, and we help each other. Yes. That's kind of how life is. So it's not perfect, but boy, is that a great idea. I love it. The last one I would give you real quick is this. Introduce a real-life dilemma in the world. Ask students, if you were in charge of solving this problem, what would you do? And then turn them loose to figure it out. I love it. I did this with my own kids when they were young. I'm telling you, at first, they're going to come up with really silly, silly answers. In fact, you may want to back off and make sure it's a right-sized problem they're trying to solve. If they're 12, give them one that's not, not for a, you know, Albert Einstein. But you stretch them a bit to yeah. help them see, oh, I can do this. I'm doing some heavy lifting. My muscles are getting stronger. Yep. I can think about this and come up with answers. So I that's that. teaching from scratch. I love that. Well, um, I appreciate all these insights. Um, one of the things that you identified is actually that the, the story of Betty Crocker and all the yeah. things they came up with. They actually had one last nugget of wisdom for us um, in utilizing this metaphor. So I don't know if you want to Yeah, I would love to. This will be quick. We'll wrap up here. But unlike other convenience foods for many women, cakes back in the day symbolized femininity and satisfaction. Mm, yes. Women felt pressured to perfect the homemade cake. Yep. A 1953 Gallup poll ranked cake the second real test of a woman's ability to cook. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Now, granted, that's 65 years ago or so, but um, that was their report card. Uh, and it was behind apple pie, you know, which was another <laughs> of baking Of course thing. it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So domestic ideals split American women. Some accepted the mixes while others clung to recipes. In the end, it was all about how consumers felt about the process. Interesting. Do you hear me, adults, teachers, parents, coaches? It was all about how the consumers felt about the process. Feeling ownership over the cake was what satisfied them. Yep, in Whatever either category, was, yeah. That's right, yeah. So let's work. I'm just saying let's work to make sure our students feel ownership of the learning process, whatever it is we're teaching, coach or teacher or parent. I think if we do, we're going to have a great young adult at the end of this journey. I love that. I love that.
Well, Tim, thank you so much for your uh, insights today. Uh, thank you guys for tuning into this. If you are looking for a way to engage with these uh, really important concepts, right, getting students to own things, building life skills in them, uh, we actually have a tool that I think would be a perfect fit um, for your school, for your home, for your um, uh, for your locker room, whatever the context is, it's simply called Habitudes. Uh, Habitudes are images that teach leadership, uh, life skills. So what we do is we take uh, images, metaphors, and stories, and we communicate and start conversations about life skills and other uh, different things that matter. So if you're looking for a way to build some of these life skills inside of students, uh, I invite you to check out this tool. In fact, focus in on Habitudes for Social and Emotional Learning. Uh, So we teach social and emotional learning skills utilizing these Habitudes. We have a middle school and a high school edition of this. If you want to check that out, find out more about it, go to growingleaders.com slash S-E-L. Uh, as always, if you would rate this podcast, give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, we would so appreciate it. And in fact, if you th- thought of somebody who might find this personally helpful, go ahead and share it with them. We would really appreciate that. Uh, finally, if you want to uh, connect with us online, we are at Growing Leaders and at Tim Elmore, pretty much everywhere you are. And then if you have ideas for this podcast, stuff you want us to talk about, people you want us to interview, just shoot us an email. It's podcast at growingleaders.com. We love getting those from you. Tim, thank you again for your wisdom. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time.